Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, it's really simple. You just head on over to our main web portal, which is officehours.global. That's where you can find more information and links about the show, what happens here, how we do it, and links to other things that can let you interact even more with the show. And speaking of interaction on the, let's see, I go this way to point at that. That's our QR code that takes you into the modified and more simple kind of um, phone version of the Office Hours question system. So if you have a question and it comes up and you go, oh, wait, wait, I really like to get this in the show, rather than going through the more robust and full-featured Mukana system, you can just scan that with your phone. It'll take you right into the question queue, type your question in, and then um, that goes into our back-end crew, and the back-end crew monitors those questions all the time and moves them over into the regular show flow so they get into the graphics and everything. So that is your easiest way to ask the panelists questions during the show. As I always note, it's also important for you to vote on questions because we spend the most time and um, the most depth on the questions to get the biggest set of votes. So your voting does count. So for everybody who's watching the show, regardless of the platform you're watching it on, if you can get into the voting system, please make your votes count. Today in our second hour, if needed, uh, we're going to be doing a, another hour of general questions. Uh, I say if it's needed because uh, we have enough to easily get us through an hour and often we grow questions during the course of the show, either using that QR code or just generally putting it in Mukana. And if we have enough content, we will cross the top of the hour for the second hour and do another hour of general questions today. If not, we'll just end the show whenever you kind of run out of questions. That's our second hour. Uh, but this is our first hour and regular Q&A. So Mitch, dive in. What is our first question for today? Thank you, Bill. I'm diving in with our first question from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Is there an automated way to scrape questions from a Slack channel to display in a video composition using Wirecast? And Samuel Nordvik's going to start us off. Samuel, good to see you. What say you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I would uh, check out social uh, stream ninja. Uh, it's a it's a, a website that's uh, um, may, or it's a service for build, bringing in comments from a lot of different sites, and a stack is listed up. So I would uh, check out that first and see if you can bring and get into something like H two O graphics, or perhaps Wirecast has a you can bring in text directly to Wirecast. Uh, so I would check out that first. I know there's a lot of other APIs to Slack. So if that doesn't work, then maybe you can uh, build something yourself. But I would check out that first. Great. Now, good, good advice. Jeffrey Powers? Yeah, there is, a, there is a way to go and send. I know you can send stuff from Google Sheets into Slack, but I th and I think you can also do the same thing. So if somebody posts on, on Slack, it could send off to Google Sheets. You also got to remember that this is a more secure environment, so it depends on how you have your Slack set up. Ah, so it, your your level of security might impact how whether you succeed or not in this. Makes sense. Let's go to the next question. From Kyle Hammond of Chicago, Illinois, what would be the requirements to set up a 24-7 meeting similar to after hours? Share any tips and tricks? Oh, it's so simple. It's just on your phone. No, <laughs> Laura Thompson. Okay, you didn't say what type of requirements you're asking about. So the first thing I would say is you need you need people. You need respond, you know, moderators and um 
people that are going to, because every 26 hours, the meeting, every 25, 26 hours, the meeting has to be reset. And that takes somebody being there with the, with the ability to do that. Um, I know after hours uses a multitude of ways to do that. I've helped with that process and it's, uh, it can be sometimes uh, quite manual. Yeah, I was I was being utterly facetious. There is a there is a huge endeavor behind what you see here on the show, and we always want to take a moment and just say thank you to every uh, unsung hero and heroine and everybody else in the back end who uh, is making this all work. Those of us that you see on the screen are just the tip of the spear here, definitely, and huge amounts of volunteer effort by highly competent people go into this. It's just a pleasure to be able to work with them every day. Uh, Mitch, your thoughts? Um, I think you guys covered it well. Uh, it takes a village to make it happen and the cooperation of the people participating. And uh, I do like when Brian Shan does the uh, the reset early in the morning, our time here in the U.S. Um, it's sometimes a uh, interesting uh, countdown down to zero hour when it gets flipped over for the next uh, 24 hours. Yeah, particularly in the way that we do things here, much of it is automated, but people have to watch that automation and tune it up and make sure that it continues. Uh, it, it's not just a set and forget process. However, there are more tools. And if you've been around the show forever, you know that we expose all of those tools to anybody who wants to learn about them. So if you're interested in uh, all those kind of subsets, Isadora, one of the control protocols we use behind the point, we actually have sessions where you can come in with, uh, I know L does the the Isadora ones, and he will explain everything that he's doing. So if, the, if you're looking to learn this kind of stuff, I don't think there's a better resource on the web right now than the Office Hours community. Come be a part of it and you will learn a bunch. Let's go to the next question. Ryan Hildebrandt from Mission Viejo, California. What are the long-term prospects for consumer acceptance of personalized marketing brand messaging using AI voice synthesis, video avatars, and deep fakes? Will these continue to, to delight or will they fatigue set in quickly? We've well, got a lot of expertise in this subject. We're going to start with Nigel DeSalle. Nigel? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure they're delighting at the moment. I think they're entertaining at the moment. The reality with all this sort of technology is, is when it gets introduced, we see, you know, the parameters of it swing violently left to right. We see the very best and we see the very worst. And over time, that the, you know, the oscillation of that pendulum, pendulum slows and gets to somewhere in the middle where if the tool is being used to help you, you will like it. And if the tool has no value to you, you won't. And anyone who spent, you know, an hour and a half on the phone with AT&T or, you know, someone like that would, would welcome a virtual tool that could actually solve their problems. Amen to that. Courtney, your thoughts? Um, well, I think uh, it may start out, <clears throat> excuse me, if uh, uh, popular or interesting, and it'll probably move to uh, hated very quickly. I thought of an interesting aspect uh, I've got a 55-year high school reunion coming up. Wouldn't it be interesting to take use AI and take the photos of us, <clears throat> our class photos from the annual, and animate them and deepfake them so that we have promos done by ourselves in the uh, from 55 years ago? That would be interesting. The problem with uh, all these uh, AI 
uh, uh, messaging, targeted messaging to individuals is that it kind of ends serendipitous discovery. You know, you may never find out that you actually like, uh, you know, mouse taxidermy or extreme flower arranging, you know, because if you haven't done it before, you may never see any ads for that. Who doesn't like mouse taxidermy? I'm confused by that. Uh, on your point, though, it was interesting when you said that. I thought that uh, another thing would be interesting is have AI take your twenty year twenty uh, year old photo and age it to your fifty fifth anniversary, and then have a shot of what it thought versus what you really are, and see how close it got. That'd be interesting. Uh, John Preto, you have tons of expertise in this area, so so I agree turn. with my two fellow uh, panelists of what has been said for this is funny because on our 40th reunion which was last year i did love children so i took i took the people that were the prettiest size and all that stuff and then i aggregated them together and made love children that was a big hit at our reunion so you can oh, do a lot like of a lot of that fun stuff yeah so exactly what exactly what nigel says it's going to oscillate between right now it's it's either great or it's horrible and it's gonna it's gonna minimize logarithmic logarithmically down think about think about uh blade runner when uh he walks into um Tyr uh, tyrell's office with what's her name and th they said is that a real owl no i can't afford a real owl that's what's going to happen it's going to be supply and demand and then you're going to have neo luddites like chris fenwick that won't accept <laughs> any any ai at all but the majority of the stuff out there will all be deep fake stuff. I think Chris is more a faux uh, neo-Luddite. I'm not sure he believes somebody. But anyway, Mitchell Hill, your thoughts. Yeah, I feel the neo-Luddites uh, require a, a representation since Chris is not here today on the show. So I'll be one of them. Take any great new technology like AI and subvert it for your use. Uh, telemarketers come to mind. They're already doing it. Have you had a conversation yet with a uh, computer voice that seems to have every an answer for everything you say? I mean, everything you say, that's the example of it. So I think we're headed for trouble because where are we going to get our information from? In other words, how are we going to be able to tell if this is the truth or a, a uh, some kind of Terminator voice uh, talking to us in our ear? It's just going to go crazy. So cats and dogs living together, it's just going to be weird stuff. Jeffrey Powers, you just popped in. Yeah, I want to answer that to what Mitch is saying. You know, for everything that's going to be happening AI-wise, there's going to be something that's countering it. Like, for instance, deepfakes. They're already building software that can identify anything that would be a deepfake. And then you would see, if it posted up, let's say, today on Facebook, uh, Tom Hanks's Iron Man will just do that. Uh, to identify it as a deep fake, there's going to be software that's going to come in and, um, and take a look at the pixels and then determine it as a deep fake and then do exactly what they do with uh, fake stories uh, and, and things like that. So AI is going to have that teeter-totter effect where there's going to be another end that's going to help counter the, the bad stuff out and filter it out so you don't even see it half the time. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing. You know, this is an extraordinarily powerful technology, and I think we're all struggling with where is it going to fit in culture and life and the rest of that. I always just, uh, to me, even the best, most potentially positive thing, if if the people who get a hold of it first and use it uh, are just oriented, like, what does this do for me? How can I make money? How can I 
get more power? How can I do something? That, that almost always goes wrong. The people who grab a hold of the same technology and say, how can I use this to help all of us usually really do advance society. So I think we're on the, the – there is a balance beam here and we're watching it just exactly as Nigel said, move back and forth as everybody explores this. Let's all keep our fingers crossed that it ends up in the we category as much or more than in the me category because I think that will help society a lot. It's, it's a powerful set of technologies. Let's go to the next question. Jason Dorman from Cincinnati, Ohio, asking – what would it be the proper specs to be for a Mac that would run Zoom ISO and up to eight HD feeds from a DeckLink Quad 2 and a Sonic enclosure into an ATAM? Mitchell Hill, you want to take a swing, swing at this? Yeah, it, uh, we've already tested it extensively right here. Uh, an M1 Mac will do the job exactly as you describe it uh, with no hiccups. So that's, that's a testament to the Silicon Macs and uh, not having to upgrade to an M2 to be able to make that happen. Yeah, I concur. It's really interesting. That was a leap in processor efficiency and technology and low power and everything else. And I'm surprised. I think a lot of people are still in that, um, you know, you have to spend a lot and get a bespoke system in order to do high-end work. I think computers in general, I think this is on both the Mac and PC side, have gotten so strong that even base units can do a lot of what used to be very high-end, sophisticated work just because there's been so much advancement in that. Jeffrey Powers, you had some thoughts? If you do get the base Mac, the best thing to do is to get the 10, 10 gig NIC inside and actually get the uh, improved 16 gigabytes of RAM inside. But definitely, if you can spring for an M2, get an M2. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, in my voice booth, I have an M2 little Mac Air, and I just compare its power, speed, efficiency to even desktop computers. I had seven, six, five years ago, and it just runs rings around them. And so it, it, the, the industry, and again, I, I'm not saying it's only Macs that do that. that the Mac migration to silicon with the M-series chips was a big watershed moment. I'm sure all the other chip foundries are doing exactly the same thing now. We're trying to get as close to it as possible. And uh, so it's, it's benefited everyone. Computers are amazing these days. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Chester Sweeney, the third from Las Vegas, Nevada. And it looks like this is from uh, yesterday's second hour. How about a show on the website for the remotes and other music projects, which, uh, which is made for? And Jeffrey is a part of the band. So, Jeffrey? Yeah, well, you know, the remotes, uh, we've been working on, uh, well, we've been working on one song, and we're still uh, working on it. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, but, you know, we've got date jobs type uh, project. So it, there'll, there'll definitely be something to make it in a regular segment. I don't think that, that that's a possibility, but it doesn't hurt to have people on and find people that can help build the song and then create second hours from that. Uh, but yeah, that's something that, uh, that could definitely be thought of. If you're interested in music and you want to explore it, volunteering for and becoming part of the Office Hours band, I, I can't tell you, I haven't done much with them in the last couple of years just because I've been so freaking busy. But I will tell you that the time I spent with them, I learned more about the practical aspects of taking something that is good in the music process and how much effort and time and expertise and attention to detail goes into making it great. And it was just a revelation. Um, we have some amazing people 
that work on these projects with us. And I came away from the project feeling like I just expanded my understanding of that world by multiple, multiple times. It was fascinating. So if you're interested, raise your hand. Jeffrey and other people in the band, Office Hours Band, um, yeah, work with them. They're great people. Let's go to the next question. From Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. This is very cool. 1.4 million people are watching this charity live stream on YouTube. Maybe we should do a second hour on influencer live streaming. That's interesting. I had not known that this was happening, but 1.4 million people watching live. That, you know, now you're getting up into broadcast television numbers and certainly past cable and things like that. So we knew this was going to happen. Eyeballs were migrating more and more to watching things via the internet and on your computer as opposed to just being stuck in the broadcast streams. And every piece of statistics I know indicates that that is happening. Courtney, you have a thought about this? Well, if you look at it, it's a soccer match. You know, millions of people watch soccer matches and it's a charity soccer match. So, of course, it's going to be popular. So I I don't think this is, a out, you know, an unusual amount of people watching a, a stream. But uh, certainly if it's well promoted and well advertised, it can certainly draw a lot of uh, viewers online. No shortage of football fans around the planet, as we see. So cool. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, asked, how do you organize all your little dongles and USB sticks? Mitch, I'm going to start with you, and then we're going to go to Courtney, Laura, and Samuel. So, Mitch, take it away. My answer is simple. Tupperware. <laughs> I think people can be a little more sophisticated than that. Courtney, what say you? Uh, don't get a Macintosh because you won't need dongles and because they have all the ports you need. But... <laughs> In reality, I use these uh, Amazon Basics mini PC. They're designed for netbook bags, uh, Amazon Basics, and they've got a little pocket. And I use a pouch, and I use keep one for just streaming sticks and additional add-ons and cables. Uh, so it's kind of an AKS case uh, for all my cables and dongles and stuff that I need on the road. Laura Thompson. I actually use a product I picked up off a of MacBreak Weekly from Andy and Otco called Cocoons and with gr the Gridit Cocoons. And they're just little flat with uh, elastic straps that you can slide around and customize. And they're, they've really, really become very helpful. To, I know right where to go to get what I need. Nice. Samuel Nordvik. Yeah, well, I use this here, uh, case here. It's like a uh, for tools and I have like a lot of ca extra cables and adapters and stuff that I take with on events and it's actually very useful when I'm out out on events like I've been saved uh, several times because there's like one thing I don't have and then I have it in here so it's very practical. Perfect. Uh, John Preto. Paul, the Dalai Lama says to get rid of all your worldly possessions and you'll be free in life. <laughs> You'd be free, but the show won't get on the air. Unfortunately, we do need some worldly possessions to this. This is tough for me. I've kind of developed a two-tiered strategy. And, and here's, if it's a thing, a dongle, a cord that is specific to a piece of equipment, particularly if there's more than one thing in that class, like let's say I have a camcorder and it has a special tap out for some reason, and I must have that tap for the system to work the way I use it. 
I will try to bundle all those things into a kit for that camera. And I'm not going to put it in with my general stuff. On the other hand, I have general stuff that, you know, oh, here are my HDMI cables and I can use them for 10 different things. I always know I need three or four. I need the, the big full-size HDMI to the mini HDMI. I need a short HDMI. I need a long HDMI. Uh, maybe I need one that has an additional power thing or something like that. In those cases, if it's a generic cable, I have a couple of different ways I handle them. But usually I try to find some totable field-safe thing to put those in by class. And I, and I say that because if you've done production for any length of time, there's just so many little things you need that if you don't follow the old advice, a place for everything and everything in its place, there is absolutely nothing worse than getting to a shoot, having, a, having things exactly the way you want them out front. But for the lack of that one specialist dongle that you didn't put in there, you can't get the signal to flow where it needs to go. That is just awful unacceptable, unprofessional. So you got to figure out a way to organize all your little stuff. It's a good question, Paul. Uh, Mitchell, thoughts? Yeah, I would say why stop at dongles? Why not go to your SD cards? This is a uh, Pelican, whoop, a Pelican case, uh, 0915, that uh, keeps all my SD cards together, good or bad. And uh, 0915, handy dandy. Not gonna yeah, lose I have stuff. a couple of those laying around as well. Although I think my first one is for old compact flashcards, the big ones. So it 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 morphs over time, and as you graduate out of equipment one class and move to the next class, sometimes you have to buy new new holders for the new stuff because it's smaller or lighter or different, whatever. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, has a question. In anticipation of a new iPhone release Tuesday, what amount of storage is recommended? Does USB ports make this moot? Planning on working with Gaussian splatting program uh, photogrammetry and nerfs. Love nerfs. Nerfs. Uh, John Preto. It's a very good. It's a very good question. It, the USB ports are not going to make that much of a difference. It's going to make it great for getting stuff off. But what I've done historically and this is changing now it's been linear i look to see how much storage i've used in my last iphone i've upgraded every year and then i double that amount to buy the new one but if you're doing photogrammetry and nerfs on this new phone and i've seen some amazing photogrammetry and nerf apps out there on twitter it's going to be really really cool uh i i would do my estimation and then probably double or triple that amount or possibly get the highest um, the highest one available, a lot of that is, work, which is what one terabyte now. I don't know. Yeah, maybe max time. I think it might even be two terabytes. And most of the Apple stuff that is one terabyte has moved to two. Nigel, your thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say a similar thing. If you can afford it, get the largest amount you can. But I guess the the other question is, how do you use your iPhone? Because if you're always somewhere close to your machine, your host or your main Mac. And you can plug in the USB and copy it across. If you're out for three days on the road and you're doing all of that stuff and you don't have that ability, then you're going to have to get the amount, most amount of memory you can afford. I do think on the iPhone question, if there's a surprise this year, I think it's something around the USB. I, I love the fact that Apple can take something that is a disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. And they did it with, you know, the zone at the top of the phone where they, the pill they managed to make sound sexy. I wonder what they're going to do with USB. So I, I'm interested to see whether they can find a way of tape, 
being made to do the USB-C into something else. And it wouldn't surprise me if we have a new cable with a new name or something or a new service that, that really makes everyone go, well, why didn't everybody else do that? <laughs> Jeffrey Powers. Cable, no, because the whole idea of, and because Apple's very, been very vocal about this. I, I, they don't want to change to USB-C the, and uh, they want to stay with the Lightning. But the problem with the USB-C is, will that USB-C be a USB 2.0? Will it be 3.0? Will it be Thunderbolt? Uh, it's all it's all dependent on that speed because, you know, because the one thing they were talking about is they, if they move to 8K photos, for example, and you're trying to transfer those 8K videos and photos off using a USB 2.0 uh, technology, that's going to take forever to do. So if that USB-C is just basically for basic transfer or charging, things like that, then it, that USB-C is going to be pretty much worthless. The two other features that are, that are being uh, rumored on there, the one thing is the, uh, the Qualcomm chips are still going to be in these phones because Apple's making a wireless chip but it's not ready yet. So the 15, it won't happen in the 15. Uh, the 16 will probably have it. And the other thing is that U, UWB connection for when the Vision Pro comes out so they can connect that up. So with those with those things, I think that what they're going to be focusing on mostly is things like uh, AirDrop, being able to transfer your files to iCloud. And uh, and that that's the types of speeds where you would then take that off your phone. As for storage, there's going to be uh, up to a two terabyte model. So if you really want to be on the safe side, that's the one you want to get, but you're going to have to pay for it. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I've always, uh, well, you could buy an Android phone that has, uh, you know, micro SD card in it, stick a two terabyte micro SD removable memory in there. But it, it's not known whether or not that USB-C will be uh, uh, USB-C host compliant. So it could you could plug something like a two terabyte NVMe drive into it and record directly onto your ex, uh, small external drive like this, which you could mount, stick on the back of the phone and maybe even mount the gimbal if you're going to use it for acquisition, for acquiring those uh, photogrammetry or 8K videos, uh, if it's even possible. So that remains to be seen. It's in the spec for USB-C, but whether they support it or not uh, in host mode and, and whether the battery can handle, uh, you know, powering an external device like this is questionable too. Oh, so all things to think about. Hopefully that helped you. Uh, remember, this show is driven by your questions, which means putting your questions in helps us program the show, literally. So um, we had the QR code up uh, earlier, and that's one way to get into the system. But the other way is to go through the regular Mukana in interface, and that really provides you some pluses. Not the least of which is that if you go into the Mukana system, uh, that is live every day during the show, and there is a robust and really informative chat that happens there. People talk about the things that we're talking about on the show. So it's a great little community to kind of get um, to talk about some of the topics in more depth that we discuss here at Office Hours. So that is something you should look into at the Mukana interface. You can find it through the website. Um, but get your questions in and vote on those questions. Let's go to the next question. Here's a question coming in on our QR code uh, way. Uh, Chester Sweeney III in Las Vegas, Nevada. Since the early episodes of Conversations with Tony Mobley, I thought maybe I could make a short theme song to open a show. Is Tony into this idea? Tony is a very open guy, so I would check with him. Jeffrey Powers, what say you? 
Yeah, absolutely. Tony would uh, love any and all help he can get. That's for sure. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I actually helped with his YouTube for the uh, first couple of years of the show. So yeah, the, the theme song that, that's in there is a, basically a stock theme song. So if they don't have to pay for that stop, stock theme song, then that's just one added feature. So I would contact Tony directly. Uh, I think Tlaloc is also still working with Tony Mobley Show, but don't quote me on that. Uh, and uh, you can probably contact them and, and say, hey, here's here's a song. And, and yeah. Laura Thompson. This could not have come up at a better time. Um, we are in a rebuild project with um, Tony's show. And yes, Tlaloc is uh, still helping with uh, Tony's show and helping us produce it. So yeah, um, reach out to Tony. Reach out to any of us that are on the crew. Um, and uh, if you can't get directly to Tony, and we'll talk, we'll, we can talk about it. It's one of the magical parts of office hours is that if you're looking for real life hands-on experience in doing this kind of stuff on the web, uh, you can volunteer your efforts and meet a lot of really nice people and get a lot of practical experience. And uh, again, it, I know it's expanded my understanding of webcasting and everything else that we do around here, all the technologies that I wouldn't have run across in my normal video practice, particularly the IT stuff, which is which is part and parcel of the entire new kind of broadcasting era. wouldn't know half as much if I hadn't been here and working with other people and listening to them. So I highly recommend it. Let's go to the next question. Gregory Wheeler from Ellicott City. Uh, what is the difference between an SDI 12G cable and an SDI 3G cable? Well, I noticed the difference with a Blackmagic SDI to HDMI bi-directional converter. Got a lot of help here. We're going to start with Courtney Gooden. Courtney? Well, probably not because you're probably not sending uh, 8K video more than about a foot or so over to hook up that converter. The difference is uh, between the cables is usually the dielectric is, which is the little, the white stuff on the inside of the cable that you strip off uh, is thicker and the shielding is better. So it has a lower impedance and better shielding to allow higher frequency transmission down longer cables. And so usually you'll see that the, uh, uh, 12 gig SDI cables are considerably thicker than the uh, 3G SDI cables, so they can get very thick and very stiff and a little tough to deal with. Uh, so keep that in mind if you're planning on sending a lot of 12G signals around, you know, 4K or 8K signals, any length, any distance at all. Uh, bear that in mind. It's gonna, you're gonna, cables are gonna take up a lot more space in your cases. John Preto, what say you? This is a very interesting question. I worked for a company that certified Ethernet cable, and you could find all the characteristics of the cable, you know, articulated out. I spent a, about 15 minutes searching for the differences in the cable, exactly what Courtney said. So the changes are in AC impedance, so they would be less in the 12, in the 12 gig, which means the frequency is higher, and it's got less AC res resistance, which is called impedance on AC um and and shorter distances as well so um i i was dumbfounded that i couldn't find more information on this question interesting mitchell your thoughts yeah perhaps gregory there may be no difference if it's a short cable because it really doesn't matter going into your converter as uh courtney said john brings up an interesting point um impedance is basically how the uh audio electronics excuse me the elect the electronics or the electrical signal pushes back 
against the uh, the signal coming in. So the less impedance you have, the longer the cable can be, which means that's why it's got to be a bigger uh, RG6, would it be, Courtney? If you're going to use that kind of kind of, yeah. RG6, you're getting a big nod. RG6 cable. All right, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, Ming-Chi Kua from Apple no longer plans to launch any MacBook models with an M3 chip before the end of this year. Why the delay? And that's what he's saying. And he's a noted analyst who keeps a, a very sharp eye on the pulse of what Apple is planning on doing. Nigel, what say you? I think there's about a thousand different thoughts here. First of all, um, I don't think Apple normally does the pros by the end of the year. I think they normally I think the last set were done in January or February. So it's not unusual for them to shift. The reality for a laptop supplier, be it Apple, be it PC, you want your lineup right really in first quarter because you're about to go into the federal government and the corporate buying cycle. You want things on the list. So the really the focus is to get it done in, in first quarter. The, the second thing I would tell you is I doubt uh, the basic thesis of this question. I doubt that Apple has decided to delay something like this because delaying a line like this is a very, very expensive thing because it's about parts, it's about synchronization, it's about keeping other products on the line. And, and if you make that decision, you have to make it so much further ahead than the almost the quarter you're in, because you'd have to keep the existing products running, you'd have to change manufacturing lines. It's a very, very complicated thing. I suspect the rumors have changed, which is really what this is about, um, because I suspect Apple probably hasn't changed its plan very much. The other thing I would say to you is if you look at the Apple lineup, it's finally starting to get fairly co coherent in the MacBook, not try, don't think yet, in the iPad line, where the air is really... Uh, N minus one in terms of the chip. The pro is the N. So you've got to think about not only what you do with the pros, but what you do with the airs and how you align the products down. And, and nobody knows how many M1 or M2s they've got manufactured. They're still being manufactured by TSMC. What's in the bins? Nobody knows that except Apple. Uh, and this is a very complicated problem for them. And I suspect they, they're on the plan they were always on. Jeffrey Powers. So if the rumor is true, it's all about that three nanometer chip. And uh, from what I've been reading is that the uh, that they're that T TSMC is uh, it, what they're they want. They can only produce so many chips, uh, so they had to basically choose what devices that you that they could do the chips into. Uh, so if this is true, then there is going to probably be no uh, additional Apple event coming in October, and uh, which is going to be very odd, just as Nigel said, you, you run into a lot of very expensive and very uh, distraught audience because they won't see anything until WWDC anyway. But there's still iPads that still uh, have to come out, uh, which I don't think are going to be coming out this, this week, uh, and that could probably fill up the October event anyway. Yeah, it's really interesting. These chips are getting so small. Three nanometers is almost unimaginable. It does provide a lot of, I understand, uh, advantages in terms of power and the fact that you don't have, the, the chips are lighter, smaller, and even faster at the same time. So it's that weird triangle where you're kind of getting, uh, they'll be, they won't be cheap, but they'll certainly be good and fast. Uh, Nigel, you had additional thoughts? I know you know this. I was really just well. going to tell you, uh, you know, two, two additional thoughts. 
uh, be a little aware when people say three nanometers, they really mean three nanometers. Uh, both TSMC and Intel have started naming things that sound better than actually the physics that underneath it. So uh, don't take that for... You say for, it might be 3.7 and... Yeah, <laughs> or five and a half or something. Um, but <laughs> the other thing is, uh, I remember living... I lived in this world for a while in a chip manufacturer, and I remember talking to a, a chip scientist um, about whether the speed of light would be the limiting factor on how small you could make a chip. And he looked at me and he said, we solved that problem a long time ago. Ah, so maybe the popular imagination doesn't understand anywhere near the sophistication of the modern technology. All I know is that devices that I'm buying for far less money are smaller, lighter, and have way more power than anything I worked with in the first 10 years of my career. So it's been a boon to most of us who need to do this kind of work, if nothing else. Let's move on to the next question. Chester Sweeney the third from Las Vegas, Nevada is back. Was Sin City the last movie to use prosthetics, or is it just a lot less common with HD films? Oh, I think there's a lot of subtle prosthetics out that you probably don't see. Courtney, what say you? You're on sets a lot. Yeah, there is a lot less prosthetics. Prosthetics have gotten a lot better since the old days of foam latex back in the 90s. Uh, they're using silicone now, and it blends in much easier. It looks more realistic. It even has pores in it. But uh, you're right. Because of uh, the higher resolution of cameras and the higher resolution of projection and screens, it's really a lot harder to uh, hide a prosthetic make prosthetic makeup unless it's just background characters. And they still use it a lot on background characters that don't have any close-ups uh, for Mr. DeMille. But uh, they're getting so good with deep fakes these days and aging and anti-aging using CGI that uh, I think the days of prosthetic makeup are are numbered. Uh, you know, as can be seen in the latest Indiana Jones movie where they had to de-age Harrison Ford considerably to do a lot of scenes. And it looks fairly believable, much more believable than probably, see, you know, trying to put prosthetics to make somebody look younger. That's a lot harder to do. Although, interestingly enough, I've been reading a bit about Maestro, the movie coming out next year about Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor, and Bradley Cooper, who plays him, wears a prosthetic nose. And it caused all sorts of difficulty. Uh, there was a lot of kerfluffle about it. All the reviews I've read since then from people who have actually seen the cut of the movie says that, that that's not an issue. It's a brilliant movie, and, and it deeply dives into him. And Bradley Cooper does a fabulous job of pulling off the character. But, you know, there we are. We're back to using the traditional no. We're going to enhance the nose to make him more like the character using traditional old-school Hollywood technology. Courtney? Also, thing I think I didn't mention is is when an actor gets made up in prosthetics and they see themselves in the mirror, it's easier for them to assume the character if they really look like the character. And uh, so, what they may do is use prosthetics on the set and then just use CGI to smooth it out or make it look better or completely replace it in post production. But to give them and the other actors on the set the feeling that you know they're talking to Einstein instead of you know, Alfred Molina dressed up as Einstein. That makes perfect sense. I can see that being a, a, a boon to everybody on set. Let's go to the next question. From Sean Johnson in New York, I've been given a smart servo motor with a light sensor by a friend poking for interesting projects to do with my kids. Any suggestions? I don't even know that I have a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino. Can anyone tell from the pics? Thanks in advance. And people are going to help you here. Let's start with Courtney. Courtney? Uh, I didn't get a chance to look closely at the pics, but uh, it looks like it's just got a regular uh, 
DC servo that would be used in remote control, you know, RC planes and things like that, uh, and a light sensor on it. And uh, there used to be things like this uh, back in Radio Shack used to make things with like a flashlight controlled car that you'd shine the light on it, and steer it by which direction you move the flashlight on the front of the car. So you could use it for something like that. Or you could use it to create a little robotic head that turns and follows you around the room to creep out your parents and friends. Yeah. There's a lot of different projects you could use with a light-sensitive control of a servo. I still think it looks like something Roadrunner and Coyote would use to blow up the trail. But anyway, Jeffrey Powers. So the front, the only thing that I can recognize on here is that front display. It's just basically a, a simple holder for a, a, like a 1.3-inch uh, uh, monitor. Those can be put into Raspberry Pis. Those can be put into Arduinos. What you probably have there is uh, what's called a stacked PCB. So you have the board behind it, and then it, and then another level with uh, that was uh, basically soldered together uh, by somebody to give you all those buttons and and dials and everything like that. The size of the board would make me think that you have an Arduino Uno in there because it's square rather than rectangular. If it was rectangular, then it could be a Raspberry Pi, but the Unos are pretty inexpensive. So I would guess that's that's the board you have inside. But we won't know until we see until you open it up, we see the back of it. We see and it'll probably say right on the board what it is. Uh Samuel. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is a 3D printed uh, case enclosure uh, but uh, it's probably arduino i would uh, assume uh, what i can recommend if you want to build a project you can google what project you want to build there's several there's several uh, sites that post them for example instructables i would also uh, recommend that if you're uh, planning to to build a project that you would look at uh, tinkercad it's uh, a simulator that you can build uh, your circuits and simulate them first uh, before you build them because there's uh, it's a lot easier to to connect it in uh, in the on the simulator before uh, uh, before you start building it in real life with all the cables and soldering and everything. And once again, you are programming the show, so if you put more questions in, we will go longer today. If you don't, we will probably finish up at the top of the hour or immediately thereafter. So just giving you a heads-up warning. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, Robolux uh, announces Robolux Connect, letting users video chat with other people as their Robolux avatar in a shared virtual space. It's available later in 2023. Comments. It is a huge, Roblox is a gigantic user community, particularly focused on young people. Uh, I think uh, teens, preteens, and even a little bit younger, perhaps. And it has, a, it's an environment where you can build and connect characters and things like that. It's really kind of as much a social media site than anything. So I'm not at all surprised that they their users are interested in, more connection uh, in, in the same way that many social media sites are. More connection and video chat adding to that is probably uh, going to serve their users well. How much I, I it's it's a big thing. There are millions of people using the Roblox system. So uh, if you don't have kids, you probably wouldn't know about it. But if you do, you might well. And so I'm going to assume I have never been on there having no kids at this point. My son's way beyond that age. Um, 
at this point, I'm assuming that since it's been going for so long, they must do a pretty good job of privacy and security and the things that any teen and preteen website would do. So if they manage to put those things in place and add video chat, I'm sure the kids and others who are there will probably really enjoy that. Let's move on to the next question. From Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, what are you all most interested in or excited about at IBC? Oh, man, so much to go here. I'm going to start with Mitch Hill, go to John, Courtney, and Jeffrey. So, Mitch, dive in. I guess my quick answer would be a different perspective because I'm used to NAB, and, of course, a lot of companies have to come here in order to show their wares. The good thing about going to IBC in Amsterdam at the Rye is that uh, I'll get to see the latest from Ari, uh, the latest from Sennheiser, Neumann, all my European uh, favorites will be right there and very likely to make their big announcements. So that's what I'm excited about. John Preto. I'm due the the ATEM 4K switcher. I'm ready for that with SDI and HDMI both built in it. But I'm more importantly, Jonas, I want to see you and John Barker drinking beer together in Amsterdam. Uh, yes, we will have a crew on the show floor. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Courtney. Isn't Sony rumored to be introducing a new Venice-type camera, you know, cinema camera that's coming out uh, yes. at IBC? So that would be interesting to look at. And I agree with John. I think ATEM is long overdue. I mean, uh, Blackmagic is long overdue for introduction of some new products because they've kind of been laying back in Sony Gear. We didn't really see anything new. And uh, even at... Uh, NAB, there wasn't a whole lot of improvement other than the one-piece switcher. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see if they're going to come up with something new. The 10R, sure. you know, that my pocketbook can afford as opposed to the Sony Venice. Yeah, and that probably will be pretty expensive. It looks like a pretty amazing camera. Jeffrey Powers. Been having a lot of conversation over this in the last week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, earlier this week, VizRT did some shuffling, uh, and TriCaster is no more. It's all called oh. VizRT Group now. So with that, uh, they, they also announced that NDI will stay a separate company uh, during this whole shift in the name. So I'm, this is NDI's first opportunity to do something. And I think their big thing is they're going to promote multi-channel audio uh, in in their NDI uh, structure there to really compete with Dante and the Dante AV. So I think there's going to be a big battle over IP uh, in the next month because you have IBC uh, coming next week and then you have NAB New York coming, um, what, the third week of October. So there, there's many opportunities for that. As for Blackmagic, I have a feeling they're going to have their own event and then they're, they're going to show their products afterwards. So we haven't heard or seen anything from Blackmagic right now. We probably won't see or, or hear anything new at IBC. And for those of you who are interested, we are going to be doing extensive coverage of IBC here on the show, including, I believe it's still on the in the cards, a regular show entirely from the floor of IBC coming up next week. I don't know which date at this point. It's not uh, here. I know uh, I was talking to Jonas the other day. He was on the show. He was talking about some of what that group, our European counterpart of uh, Office Hours or the European team, uh, members who come into Office Hours from Europe. Uh, but it, it sounds like people are traveling. They're gathering equipment. They're going to try to do essentially what we do for uh, – not try to do. They will do it because we have a ton of technical expertise. They will be broadcasting live from the show floor at uh, IBC. So um, at the tail end of the hour today, you will see um, the promotional ad give you a little flavor 
for what IBC looks like. It's in Amsterdam, which is a beautiful city, and so we may get a little look at uh, around Amsterdam, and we will spend some significant time on the show floor talking to the people who are producing this new technology. So should be a great week coming up for that. Let's go to the next question. Chester Sweeney III from Las Vegas, Nevada, asking, on the sound devices MixPre 3, there's a stereo out and a headphone out. Is there a difference and why? Courtney, what say you? I think the difference is routing. Uh, and also, I think there might be some requirements for uh, ear protection that uh, put a limiter on headphone outputs that you can usually turn off to prevent you from damaging your hearing. Uh, there's some consumer electronics, whether or not they adhere to that consumer electronics requirement to protect hearing on a headphone output, I don't know. But uh, the routing is different and uh, the unbalanced, you know, mini plug out line output uh, is pretty much the same signal, but you can route things differently to it inside in the routing. Okay, hopefully that was helpful, Chester. Let's go to the next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida. Jeff asks, best app to create audiograms for social media video, ideally the most flexible visual design options. So I don't do a lot of this. I've used it as an effect in a couple of things. And I, I believe by audiograms, uh, grams, I'm, I'm guessing, but tell me if you think I'm wrong, that you're talking about the display of waveforms or... Uh, we see a lot of the bouncing meters for audiograms, and I think that's what you're talking about. If so, a lot of special packages on the back end uh, that run either on uh, Mac or on PC programs allow you to visualize the audio and look at it. We did it for one of the, uh, I did it for my video for one of the Office Hours uh, remotes band things. I had a little audiogram at the bottom that just gave you a visual idea of what was being created as it was being created. They're really fun to watch. Uh, you get you let you watch audio content. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I, usually I found it to be a plug-in running in something that I'm running traditionally. I think I got mine from VFX plugins on the Mac side, but I'm sure there's plenty of things available on the PC side as well. Courtney, your thoughts about this? Well, not participating in social media very much. I'm not an expert by any means. There is, however, uh, I think I found one, uh, Canva makes a uh, tutorial on how to create audiograms with Canva. And it goes through step-by-step step on, uh, you know, how to choose a template. They have templates of all available. You grab um, sound bites from your audio editor, you select a template, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Bob's your uncle. Uh, <laughs> and you yeah. have something you can post on uh, on your social media. But Canva, you might look there because they have a step-by-step -step process on how to create them. I will say, as you just saw from that, uh, I took the waveforms that were done on white and just used a Luma key, knocked out the background, uh, changed the shape of it. Those kind of things are pretty easy to do in just your nonlinear editor once you've uh, captured the content that you want in terms of a live video stream of the audiogram reacting to the sound in real time as much as you're going to use in your program. So uh, I didn't do it live, but in those cases, it's, it's you know, you use your basic NLE uh, creator skills to customize what the audiogram thinks that it should look like. And it, it's not, it wasn't terribly difficult. Courtney Gooden, you want to follow up? Is it, well, I'm not sure if I'm interpreting audiogram correctly or you are, or 
it seems from this description of this uh, Canva thing that, that it takes the audio of spoken word and translates it into text and then presents that text in sync, uh, like uh, kind of like closed like captioning, captioning with yeah. a style, you know, with a style that's only text displayed on the screen that highlights each text, kind of like you would uh, see at a karaoke bar, uh, each word highlighted as it's spoken as you're listening to it, or words appear and, and animate based uh, just to keep it interesting as you hear the dialogue uh, being spoken on the text on the, uh, uh, maybe soundtrack. that's what they're talking about. I, I was a little leery there too. Mitch, do you have further clarification or know what he's specifically? I, I'm not going to clarify. I'm just going to throw another idea out there. I know in After Effects, uh, there's a character animation functionality that will take audio in and move the mouth accordingly, a la clutch cargo, I guess. And your Bob's your uncle. And there you go. So whichever way you're going, Jeff, put in more information if you want us to try to drill down more. Uh, I, if it was lookupable and if it's built into Canva, which is a very popular content creators program, uh, then maybe that's the standard use of it. Let's go to the next question. Chester Sweeney the third from Las Vegas, Nevada. What are some best practices for using your iPhone 14 Pro to shoot someone when they're grilling outside at a party? Mitchell Hill. Uh, avoid the Enfuego. <laughs> Do not melt your phone or case is usually step number one. It, it makes a very bad hamburger substitute. You will not enjoy that. Uh, I would say, yeah. Um, so what were the top three things, uh, the best practices? Uh, okay. I'll start you out. If you're ever shooting with your phone and you don't do it a lot, the first thing you want, these modern phones have great stability, but I still use a two-handed grip on my phone and I keep my elbows tucked into my body because that helps stabilize the phone. If you're out here, you tend to be less stable. Again, I've just learned I try to pan with my torso as opposed to panning with my hands. Uh, I try to start out with as much stability in my holding and operating of the phone as I can, and then I let the stabilization enhance that, and you can usually end up with very smooth and interesting moves. Um, other best practices, coverage. Do wide shots to establish the scene. Here we are at the grill. Here's the party decorations in the West. Do medium shots to say here's the person at the grill. And do close-ups to get down there and zoom in. Don't hold your phone over the fire. That's a bad idea. But find an angle that you can zoom into it so you don't melt the phone at the same time you do that. Those are kind of some just basic best practices for using your phone to shoot anybody doing anything. Uh, Jeffrey Powers, you have some more suggestions? Yeah, if uh, well, it also depends on if you're doing vertical or horizontal video. Uh, notice where the camera is, if you got it here, if you got it here. If you do the salt maneuver, you know, the whole salt maneuver with the phone, I always try to have my phone like this so you have a nice fulcrum in the middle. And, of course, you put your fingers down, and it keeps for a nice stable environment with the elbow tucked in, as Bill just said. And then you can use that kind of like a little jib right there and move it around, and then you can do a little bit of shifting really easy with your phone from there. If you're doing it from here, uh, you can have a nice uh, handle on the phone. That's why I kind of like the little lanyard that I have on my phone, because then I can wrap it around my wrist so I can really keep my hand uh, uh, as nimble as possible. And then if you've got a watch, the watch will do all the starts and stops, and your nose really works really well for hitting the button. 
So uh, well, last one last thing. The thing that I enjoy about this kind of hold, and I tend to hold my phone with both hands, is that if you keep your fingers away from the grip, then you're going to be doing a lot of work on the interface of your phone. You can zoom, you can pull back, you can start and stop by just using the finger on top because you have both of these fingers available for operating the phone while you're holding. So that's my traditional grip, three fingers on each of the top corners, a thumb underneath, and that allows me, I, it feels natural to me now, so I shoot all my iPhone stuff that way. So just general stuff that those of us who do a lot of shooting with phones have learned. Let's go to the next question. David Brady from New York, New York uh, has a question. I have a stack of old iPads and iPod touches that are kneecapped at older versions of iOS. Rather than e-waste them, what are some creative uses of these things and how can you load up old versions of applications? Courtney, or Nigel, I'm sorry. Nigel, start us off. Yeah, I used to have a thing called a Sinclair ZX80, I think it was, which was a very old PC, but it was like wedge shape. And I found that very good for jamming a door open because you could, like, get it under. And I think some of those old iPads could probably hold doors open if you just jam them under uh, well enough. Um, that, that aside, I think uh, one of the uses I see people do is, and, and again, this is going to depend on how old it is and the software levels, uh, and it's really hard to get old ones, particularly less, uh, you can find versions of the OS. Finding versions of apps is harder. I know what lots of people do is in homes where they use home automation, they they take old iPads and they make them effectively panels for people to use so that they uh, put uh, shortcuts, they put scenes on them. And then when someone comes into the house or if someone who's not as technically savvy on their phone has a very simple interface to use to open the shades, turn on the lights, do those sorts of things. So think about the automations in your home and your office. Think about uh, ways to make it easier for people to use the facilities that the system has access to, and then just narrow the, the iPad to that particular use. Courtney. You know, I went to see Oppenheimer uh, this week at an AMC theater. And as I, I had my ticket uh, as a QR code and a barcode, and so I went to to go in uh, to be checked in by the ticket, normally the ticket taker, but now is the QR scanner guy. And he has trouble scanning my QR code and tries it again and tries it again. And I look at the device he's holding and I said, what are you using, an iPhone? And he says, oh, no, it's even older. It's an iPod Touch. So AMC Theaters has written a custom interface for the old iPod Touch with a smaller screen, you know, about that big a screen, uh, to use to do their bar, barcode scanning for ticket entry. So take all those old iPod Touches down to AMC. They'll probably press them into service because uh, they need some that work. Absolutely. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, uh, kiosks are perfect for a lot of old, older iPads because they don't need that much and they already got the software, as Courtney said. They probably already have the software written. Uh, anything that, that stay away from any banking application or anything like that on your older iPad for sure. Uh, but the other thing is uh, you can also send them to off. There's a couple companies that actually turn them into iPad art. So if, unless you want to do it yourself, you basically take it apart, put it on a board, discard properly of the battery, and then you could have something nice on your wall that you could actually set up so it would work. And finally, John Preto, I have 28 seconds for you. David, you set all those up, you create a click farm, and then Paul hires you to upvote his questions in Makana. 
Oh, there you go. That's a whole, I never thought about that strategy, but that, yeah, will be interesting. Uh, thank you all for all of your first hour participations. We are getting ready for our transition and we have a little time cue that's coming up that I'm going to do my best to hit. Um, IBC is our topic. Um, we're going to spend a good amount of time coming up at IBC on the show floor and doing other things. We have a little prepared piece of content for you to watch here. It'll be coming up in a couple of seconds. It's coming up next week in Amsterdam at the Rye Auditorium. We'll have live team coverage right there. So let's roll the video and you can see. European members of the Office House community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies and this year we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved over on officehours.global slash IBC. Welcome back to our second hour of Office Hours. Today, we're focusing on your general questions. Let's get back into the question. Mitchell, what do we have next? Coming up next, uh, Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas is asking, Global Star signed a $64 million deal with SpaceX to launch satellites for Apple's emergency SOS iPhone feature in 2025. What do you think? This is an interesting question. I um, haven't paid a ton of attention to it. Courtney? I have a, I think it, I, th I think I read an article about it. It's a it's a less dense uh, constellation than, of course, they're using for uh, 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 Musk's uh, Skylink. But um, it is, and I think it's just primarily for lower bandwidth uh, messages, text messages only, uh, rather than communications itself. They they have it now through Skylink through a, through a deal that they have now. But Global Star, I think, has made the deal with Apple. To provide a more consistent one, uh, although uh, I don't think it has the kind of range and coverage that uh, current Skylink is. It's a, a much lower number of satellites uh, than the constellation that Skylink has. Bill? Yeah, it was interesting. I read a story. They've rolled out the feature, this kind of emergency SOS feature. And one of the things that allows you to do is put in just very, very basic text. You know, the phone often knows where it is because it's geo-connected. Uh, so I remember reading the story of somebody who was hiking and ran into a serious medical emergency. And they were way outside of... Uh, they're in the middle of nowhere, basically. And in fact, their phone had no connectivity at all whatsoever, but he did the most brilliant thing I thought. He typed in this emergency message that will only work when it can see a cell tower, and then he connected his phone, and for some reason he had helium balloons with him, and he literally sent the phone up till it got high enough over the mountains he was surrounded with, and it auto-sent the text because text will store in your phone until it gets a connection. And they managed to save him and I think somebody else who had run into the same problem on their trail. The reason I'm saying this is that having a global system that can reach into modern cell phones and protect people in cases of very serious disaster or, or emergencies just seems like it's a really cool thing. So I'm glad Apple is 
pursuing this. I would hope that others do the same thing and that they can roll this out across all phones in the future. But it was interesting that the text message was the the right thing to do. And as I understand it, Apple's emergency SOS only allows you a limited text, but that might be the difference between life and death in some circumstances. So that's pretty cool. Next question. Next one in from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. I'm creating an audio drama for my son's birthday. What is your approach to mastering? I've seen that people render, then master the audio. Is that still done, or should I master in the main DAW file? Mitchell? Um, if I understand you, your question correctly, uh, you're producing uh, the, uh, the production inside a DAW, and that's usually some kind of mezzanine format or something particular to the DAW. You don't commit until you save it or export it. If you're exporting from that file, you can export as many different versions of it, wave, MP3, whatever, uh, from that from the DAW itself. But I wouldn't commit a lossy format to the DAW master because if you need to come back to it, you're stuck with uh, re-compressing re, uh, and then uncompressing it again. It's uh, It's a mess. Yes, next question. Hoken Foss from Stockholm, Sweden. Any suggestion on how to use pre-installed Simpty fiber at a venue so I don't have to run my own LC single-mode fiber? Parts needed. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Laura. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> it's just I was thinking uh, Alex has talked about this a little bit. And I guess terminating fiber is not as simple as uh, terminating copper, which most of us learned how to do along the way. It is not impossible. There are kits for the proper terminations so that you can plug fiber into a into a venue system. Now, I would certainly talk to the venue ahead of time and find out what kind of fiber connections uh, they are providing you there. They may have already split out the fiber into traditional, for example, audio and XLR and or video and BNC and things like that. Those standards have been around for a long time. So it may not turn out to be as, as difficult as you think. But on the other hand, you may need to attach uh, jumper cables, jumper fiber cables between you and the process. So I would just communicate very distinctly with the with the facility well in advance and make sure that you test it and you have the signals you expect before you show up. Uh, finding out you have everything except one small tool that you need that makes the whole thing fail is never a good look. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, usually a venue, I've done a number of jobs where venues have fiber connections that come out in, in uh, link boxes that are, you know, available on stage or, uh, or in other, in green rooms, things like that. And they've always had, the venue has always had a set of adapter boxes to go from fiber to SDI or audio. So um, they have boxes for each. So check with the venue because they probably have a means of converting it to whatever signal you're, you're trying to tie for the tie lines between the, let's say, the projection booth and the, uh, and the stage. Uh, so check with them because they'll probably have the adapters to carry your signal uh, digitally or even over analog. Bill, you want to jump back in on this? Yeah, I just wanted to say that doesn't mean that they won't kit you for $100 an hour for that box. <laughs> you know, venues are notorious for making money on everything that they provide for you. So make sure you talk about costs with them as you're trying to get this organized. Yes, communication is always very key when working with a venue. Um, I know Alex has told stories of different times of, you know, how important having that person at the venue that you communicate with is. Next question. 
From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, can Clubhouse recapture the magic it once had, or is it a fleeting moment driven in part by global circumstance? Go ahead, Bill. My answer is going to be B. I think I think Clubhouse had its shot, and I'm not sure it will ever get to be uh, get the mind share that it had for a while. It seemed like it was a real interesting thing, but the implementation and what they managed to do kind of showed me they weren't really ready to scale as needed back then. And I don't think Clubhouse is different enough now to provide anybody with a compelling reason to try to go back in. Most people have chat functions, which was basically what Clubhouse integrated, just a, a group chat kind of guided by whoever the, had the channel open at the time. But I think there are just so many options for that. In fact, we had just that question a few minutes ago that even Roblox for the kids is talking about doing some form of video chat in there. So almost every social media site now has connectivity between individual users. So I my, my suspicion in the pit of my stomach is they kind of missed their moment. But we'll see. Jeffrey? So a couple days ago, they announced that they were going to turn into an audio messaging app, which would definitely uh, give them a different light in what they're doing. Yeah, uh, X has uh, already got the uh, the clubhouse feel in their, in their audio. And of course, they got a bigger user base that will do that. There are still a lot of people that love clubhouse, still use clubhouse. So as long as there's a active fan base that's uh, in a a number over let's just say about a hundred million, I think that they'll be uh, they'll be be able to move. And of course, with the audio messaging, if you have an alternative to Facebook messaging and WhatsApp, then uh, people are going to start to use it uh, a little bit more because some people steer away from from those apps because of the Meta, basically owned by uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So uh, it's a great alternative if it comes to light. Uh, I never, I never see anything or say any pro a company is going to be out for the count. I thought Snapchat was going to die a long time ago, and they're still going. Uh, if they find the right, uh, the right thing, the right groove, the right niche, they could go on for years. Go ahead, Courtney. Oh, MySpace, move over, make room for Clubhouse to the abandoned dustbin of abandoned uh, of abandoned social media platforms. Yeah. Um, the one group that I thought it was very interesting went to Clubhouse very early and is, from what I know, still active, was the uh, National Federation for the Blind does a lot of their stuff on Clubhouse because it was easy. And um, where Zoom has a video component, they, uh, they prefer just the audio only for but the accessibility on that app was not amazing, which I really thought was kind of a um, catch-22 there. Jeffrey, you want something to jump back in? Yeah, and uh, as you're saying that, I, I was talking about X earlier. This my X with X, they're... I, I think Elon's trying to privatize a lot of stuff uh, and ultimately to get your money uh, to get into and use all their apps. So if X decides that that's a firewall, a paywall issue that or a paywall feature, then a lot of people will probably jump over to Clubhouse and go from there. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The accessibility is, it, it, there's only so much you can do on a phone. And if they kind of open up their senses a little bit and actually create things like a desktop app uh, that could probably uh, give them more life.
Yeah, the voiceover experience with Clubhouse on an iPhone is just not not great. Um, I've heard several people tell me that it was just really clunky and it hasn't gotten much better from what I've been told. Next question. Chester Sweeney, the third from Las Vegas, Nevada, has a question. What kind of DVD burner and player should I get for my Mac Mini M2 to back up Logic made music or watch Parks and Recreation and get smart DVDs? Go ahead, Mitchell. There are a, as Bill would say, plethora of uh, external DVD uh, USB devices out there. My personal favorite are Plex Store. Um, but you didn't put a price uh, limit on this. So I'll go to the top end. Plex Store being my favorite, uh, especially if you're ripping music and things like that. Bill? If you didn't talk about authoring, if you just want to burn something, Apple makes a drive uh, for a that that I'm sure has been updated consistently to work with Mac minis or all the Mac lines. Um, I bought one back when I still needed to work with DVDs. I haven't had it out of its box in probably five years, maybe longer than that. But they do have a basic Apple DVD burner player that works just fine. Courtney? Well, I was going to recommend this LG, which is what I use, uh, which I like. But then I went and looked at the specs, and it says uh, Windows only, Windows XP. It's a Blu-ray burner. Uh, external works over USB, USB-A or USB-C. Uh, LG does make some, look for one and see if you can find one that's Mac compatible uh, to do your uh, backup on that connects over USB-C. Next question. Pokan Floris from Stockholm, Sweden. Any suggestions on how to communicate to com commentators from an OB van in addition to audio comms? Bill, you want to jump in on this? Yeah, the traditional way, I think, uh, if you don't use comms, use walkie-talkies. Uh, that's, you know, typically there's an if comms goes down, you need some sort of backup. And most of the time I've seen the modest Motorola-style walkie-talkies uh, for a second form of communication out to field operators. The big advantage of that is that you can easily cover almost any set in terms of the walkie-talkies will make it a half a mile or whatever you need. Uh, they're not as flexible as a comm system where you're on all the time and you have PLs and you have all sorts of things that you can make a, a better and more uh, robust show on. But a little walkie-talkie that has five channels can, can back it up in a pinch. Yeah. Um, I know here we use uh, Unity for the show, and it's just kind of interesting to see. Um, I, I previously worked retail where we had the walkie-talkies and it's just so interesting to see how something similar can actually go global and uh it's a really it, there's so many things about this show that you just sit there and go wow they did what um but yeah there's there's similar but the the function and the um features are very different between the two next question and it's the last one on deck. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. eBay is rolling out a new AI tool for marketplace sellers that can generate a product listing from a single photo. It's available in eBay app for iOS to start with the Android app to follow. John? No, no surprise here. Uh, Courtney said it best this week. AI is going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be everywhere. Remember GPT-3 um, launched in 2020? And a lot of these apps have been used via the API for three years now. So Jasper, Rightly, Grammarly, all of those have been using ChatGPT under the covers via the API. 
So this is the integration and you're going to see they're doing it on Amazon. They're going to do it on eBay. They're going to do it everywhere. Wow. Yes. So we've come to the end of another Saturday. I want to thank the panel for being here with us today on a Saturday. The producers whose questions without the show would not be possible. Our, our show runs on your questions and also the back end crew. A small village lights up seven days a week, 366 days a year, 365 most years to make this show happen. And it's it's amazing from the management team, Josh, Roy, Simon, through our, our crew that's here with us and the planning, the councils. There's a lot that goes into making this a show. So the Tulalip Traversal today, we went 69,000 miles, 111,000 kilometers. That's more than 550 million bananas for scale. Let's jump into after hours. Saturday. I gotta do a little more barbecuing. Going to go see the Barbie movie? Queue it up. <laughs> I you recommend know, barbecuing. Not Thanks, barbecuing. everybody. It was Thank better you. than I expected by far. I had a great time. Especially the poorly treated Barbie, Kate McKinnon. I don't. Kate McKinnon I don't want to. Was. I don't want to be caught going there by myself. Uh, find a friend. <laughs> yeah, there you know, it's PG thirteen, so there's not a lot of little kids. <laughs> right. It, it's Let's go, a, Barbie. It's a much better movie than it had any right to be. That's my final review of it. 